This week, no yoke. We hear from egg producers facing huge costs because of the summer drought. A proportion of producers will sadly go out of business. We've seen uh, a producer packer business go out of business uh, quite recently. Also, we celebrate Love Lamb Week. I'm standing in my pen with Southdown sheep. They came off the watch list in 2007. A few years ago, we were getting nearly a pound a kilo, and, and this coming year is predicted to be about 60p a kilo. People expect their food to be on the supermarket shelves 24-7, and it's a long process to get it there. And meet our newest contributor. The water quality data that I will provide to you will keep you informed of relevant pesticide levels. More from Kelly Hewson-Fisher on water quality a little later. The Week in Agriculture. This is The Farming Programme with Sean Dunderdale. Good morning. We've already discussed the problems facing livestock farmers with the summer drought, particularly sheep and cattle, and the need for food and bedding. But of course, all livestock is affected. And even though the drought is now over, the problems do continue. Free-range egg producers, for example, are facing a huge increase in the cost of feed. And it's led the British Free-Range Egg Producers Association to call for an immediate price rise from those buying their eggs. Robert Gooch is chief executive of the association. Robert, it hasn't been the best of summers, has it? Yeah, well, the, the, the drought has had a big impact on all, uh, on all farmers. Um, arable farmers have seen their yields go down and uh, the result of that is that the ingredients that go in to supply the feed for livestock producers has had to go up because the the ingredients include wheat and other uh, outputs produced by the arable farmers. So the decline in yields has led to an increase in feed prices which has affected um, all uh, livestock producers but poultry producers in particular. And that's obviously not good news, is it? I mean, it, the, some of the, the costs are staggering. I mean, an increase maybe of £40,000 on a flock for some. That's right, yeah. And um, because feed is the by far the largest element of cost for any poultry producer, um, that is, a, that is a, a major significant uh, impact on profitability. So the average, average uh, poultry uh, and, and, and laying hen or chicken free-range egg producer will have... 60% of his costs tied up um, by feed costs. So when they rise, it has a huge impact on um, the viability of the farm. And of course, you know, in certain areas of retail, if, if the costs go up, then the prices will go up. But that doesn't happen really, does it, Frank Producers? No, there isn't, there isn't a, uh, a very obvious link between what happens to farm prices or ex-farm prices to the products and what happens in the shops. Uh, to you. <clears throat> in 2015, prices in the shops for a dozen of eggs were varied between £2 and £2.50. This is for a dozen free-range eggs, and now they're roughly the same, but the price producers got in 2015 was a pound a dozen for uh, free, free, large free-range eggs, and now they're down to, according to government figures, down to about 83p. So the price in the shops doesn't always correlate to what happens to prices on the farm. Now you're asking for um, an immediate price rise, uh, certainly from um, you know from the, the suppliers, uh, from the supermarkets and, and and others, those with the contracts. Do you think there's any possibility of that? Uh, well, we we think there should definitely be a, a a link between the price that farmers get and the feed costs that they have. This happens quite a lot across the industry: um, uh, chicken, meat, or broiler producers and, and pork producers. Um, have a link so that they, they have some form of stability in their incomes when feed prices vary. 
And so um, uh, about 30% of our members do have these feed price contracts, feed link contracts, um, and so the cost and the price of, of their product will be going up in line. But for the, the vast majority, that doesn't happen. So what we're asking is for that to be available to all producers um, so that they have some sort of stability um, to their incomes. As you say, it is possible, you know, 30% uh, are doing it now. We, we see it in the pig sector, the broiler sector. It is, it is possible to, to have those contracts, isn't it? And they do work. It, it is possible. Um, and I think it's probably because <clears throat> the uh, laying hen, uh, the egg sector, isn't quite so integrated as other sectors. So um, a lot of um, individual farmers who are producers aren't tied up so much with the, the supply chain in, in the same way. And so we just need to push a bit harder on, for, for, for laying hemp producers so that they can have the same, if you like, uh, benefits that are available to, to other producers and other sectors of agriculture. And if that doesn't happen, what, what will happen? I mean, it can't be sustainable to carry on as we are. <clears throat> That's right. So what will happen is that a proportion of producers will sadly go out of business. We've seen uh, a producer packer business go out of business uh, quite recently, uh, which has had an impact on... 17 producers, and um, there'll be more, unfortunately, there'll be more of that come. A lot will depend on what happens over feed prices in the autumn, and that is really a, a global phenomenon. So, so feed prices are, to a certain extent, not just what happens here, and so we'll be interested to see what happens in the harvests around the world as, as, as feed, feed prices continue to firm. But the prospects do not look good at the moment for egg producers, and so we're asking for an immediate price rise um, to, to reflect the current situation and more availability of these feedling contracts. It'll be interesting to see what does happen. That's uh, Robert Gooch, Chief Executive of the British Free Range Egg Producers Association. You might have noticed uh, Sean Sparling wasn't on the programme last week. He was away filming for a new television programme. He's back uh, this week, though, for our agronomy update. Hello, Sean. Oh, thank you for noticing, Sean. <laughs> yeah, I was um, I was away in London filming a piece for Horizon, which is a programme that's been going for years, and it's all about uh, supermarkets and their wily ways, basically. So as soon as I know when that's going to be on, I'll let you know. So there's a lot going on. I've had a, a week off as well um, through the summer, and I've come back to not as disappointing a harvest as we perhaps thought it might be. There are one or two crops which are just as disappointing as we expected. For example, the beans, the spring beans in particular. I don't think I've ever seen brookid beetle levels quite as high as they are this year. And I've put little sticky traps out in fields and I would check them on a weekly basis. So I would pop them in on the Thursday and I'd go back to that and have another look at it the following Thursday. And in the meantime, the manager would be looking as well. Um, And I would normally expect to get about 10 or a dozen brookid beetles stuck on my sticky trap in the space of seven days. This year, it is quite extraordinary. I mean, there would be upwards of two or 300 within 24 hours. And that's an inevitability in a season like this where we've got hot temperatures because brookid migrate and do all that they do in temperatures above 20 degrees. And we had about eight weeks of that sort of weather. So it's inevitable, really. It means you miss out on the human consumption market, but they will still go for feed. Yields are very disappointing. We'd normally expect six beans to a pod and we've maybe got two or three this year and the numbers of pods 
are significantly lower, particularly in those beans which went in late. But other crops are surprising us. Some of the varieties are showing really, really good results this year. Graham and Kerin and Shabras and Siskin. And there are several varieties out there in the field which are doing really, really well for us. Um, but what this year has shown up is it's the older varieties which have struggled most. So the Clares and the Evolutions and the Revelations, those sorts of varieties haven't done as well as their uh, counterparts on the same farm in the same season. Now, what I would say is I would urge a bit of caution. Don't just boot varieties out because of the results of this year, because it has been quite an extraordinary season. And don't just blame it on the summer, because the winter, I think, did far more damage. If you were on land which wasn't free draining, and that's the key, it's not heavy land, it's not light land. If you were on land that wasn't particularly free draining, it sat wet over the winter, that did a lot of damage to the fibrous roots, whether it be all seed rape or cereals. And once you got to the summer where we had a drought, if there's not a sufficient root system available to go searching for water, that's where the problems have come from, I think. So don't just rule things out because it's been a bad year for that variety on that farm this year. It may not be the right way of doing it. But what it has shown is that plant breeding has gone on a step um, and some of these more modern varieties have shown much less variability in this sort of season. And what we don't know is whether this is now the new norm going forward. So on to crops that are in the ground then. Oilseed rape, we're seeing a few flea beetle, cabbage stem flea beetle out there in the field. Um, I parked up the other day with my black truck and was counting, I counted 19 big black cabbage stem flea beetles stuck on the bonnet. Um, so they think uh, I am a massive cabbage stem flea beetle so if I cover my car in honey and drive around it should they should all stick to it but they're not causing as much damage widely as they have done previously that doesn't mean they won't you need to be vigilant you need to keep your eyes open and for goodness sake don't forget about the slugs just because it's warm and dry it doesn't mean the slugs have gone away just because we've had a hot dry summer it doesn't mean the slugs have gone away what they will have done is moved down in the profile to the moisture because there was plenty of moisture at depth and now we've had some moisture you almost get a capillary action uh, going on and the slugs are now drawing up to the surface and we are seeing quite a lot of significant slug activity out there in the field remember not to use metaldehyde on the outsides of your field particularly if there's a water course but it's good practice not to put metaldehyde slug pellets on that outside 20 meters anyway and use slug traps and baits to make sure you have an issue before you go spreading um, and it's always worthwhile spreading the worst areas rather than blanket applying slug pellets across fields we need to preserve them we're all in metaldehyde stewardship we need to make sure we're doing the job properly and the about the only other thing really is if you've got wheat coming into fields which have black frost for goodness sake use the opportunity of this dry weather to get out there get some cultivations done and just tickle them over and roll them and get a nice fine flat firm seed bed to get the most out of a flush of black grass that will inevitably come it started to come already so you want to utilize the stale seed beds to their maximum advantage so leaving fields just before you go in and drill them that isn't the right thing to do give it a little chip over encourage this black grass to get going and we'll be set up for a crack in autumn and i hope the weather stays a bit favorable for us but we get what we get as this year has proved a better harvest than we thought it would be the prices are phenomenal and you're always better to do three 
three and a half to four ton and get 190 quid a ton for it than you are to do five ton and get 120 quid a ton for it. And the reason the prices are good is because the yields are poorer. And that is definitely worth some something worth considering. So I'll see you next week, Sean. Ah, uh, yes. Good to have you back. Thank you, Sean Sparling of Sparling Agronomy Services. We're loving lamb in a moment. First, our weekly update on the grain markets from the team at Open Field. It's Kit Dickinson this week. The latest this week on the wheat market. And once again, the rumour mill went out in full swing following another meeting on Tuesday between the Russian government and exporters regarding the eventual export constraints, sending wheat prices in Europe and the US sharply higher. Barley markets took a back seat on Wednesday and wheat ruled the roost. However, I would point out that the Russian barley S&D last week identified an exportable surplus of 3.8 million tonnes against the USDA's 4.8 million, and this takes on significant importance given the new limits on Russian all-grain exports of 30 million tonnes, particularly when you take corn into account. Wednesday's rally was somewhat of an enigma, with rumours of Russian export restrictions swirling around, but with no real facts yet to substantiate it. Chicago futures rose 20 20 cents and Matif closed over 5 euros up as rumours of an export tax on Russian exports for over 25 million will be put in. Reuters are reporting there is a meeting booked for the 3rd of September between the Russian Agricultural Ministry and the grain exporters to discuss the recent market situation. Following on from Chris's comments last week, it now looks like the Russian situation that is dominating the market yet again, with estimates of a Russian 2018 wheat harvest at 69.6 million metric tonnes from 70.8 metric tonnes previously. They left the Russian wheat export estimate unchanged at 32.5 million tonnes. This is slightly below the USDA number of 35 million metric tonnes, both of which look pretty high compared to the government's own figures, some 5 to 10 million lower perhaps explains why action might now be taken to curb the pace of exports. Oilseed rape. It's been a quiet market this week for oilseed rape, which has been supported by a lack of sellers, firmer currency and good demand for crushers pre-Christmas. There are expectations of a tight S&D on the back of lower yield in the UK and a smaller French and German crop number. There is also a question mark over Australian crop, which will be giving uncertainty to the market. Barley hasn't suffered the price drop as much as wheat in the last two weeks and has held fairly firm. Most consumers have cover to December and the price for feed barley is being underpinned by a steady export demand out of the East Coast. Moving on to beans and pulses. Rain showers across the country are delaying harvest, but we mustn't forget we are only at the beginning of September. Early cut samples are high brooked and lower yielding, as expected due to the hot, dry weather. The pulses market will remain slow until the majority of the crop has been harvested, giving us a clearer indication of yield and quality. Prices this week. Feed wheat, November 176 to 179. January 180 to 182. May 183 to 185. Milling premiums are 13 to £15 pounds above feed base. Feed barley, November 169 to 171. January 170 to 172, and there is no carry further forward. Malting premiums are 25 to 30 pounds, dependent on area and quality. Oil seed rate November 320 to 322, January 322 to 324, and May 325 to 327. Beans for November 195 to 200, with one pound carry going forward. Human consumption premiums remain ill-defined until more of the crop is evaluated. 
Thank you, Kit Dickinson at Open Field. Now, it's September. You'll have noticed, just look at the calendar. So, uh, time for something new for the programme. Kelly Hewson Fisher from Anglian Water will be joining us each fortnight to update us on the current water quality across the regions. Uh, Kelly, what's the aim of the uh, regular updates? Pesticides are lost from yards when filling and handling, and also through field applications, through the field drainage systems, and through surface runoff. These pesticide losses make their way into watercourses, streams and rivers where we abstract for drinking water. The drinking water standard is that no individual pesticide exceeds 0.1 micrograms per litre or parts per billion. The treatment processes within water companies are effective with many pesticides, but some are difficult to treat or impossible to treat. Pesticides such as metaldehyde, propizamide and clopyrrolid. During higher levels of these, we stop or limit our abstraction. The water quality data that I will provide to you will keep you informed of relevant pesticide levels and how that relates to practically what's happening on the ground and in the field. So, for example, at the moment, we're drilling oilseed rape. There are slugs about, although at varied levels across the counties, and slug pellets are being applied, and some of those do contain metaldehyde. The feedback I have received from farmers and agronomists over the last couple of years of receiving this water quality data information has been that they have really welcomed this information. They've welcomed the local level of the information and how they can relate that to the watercourses, the streams and the rivers within their own specific catchments. This data is for information and I would encourage farmers and agronomists to have a look at whether they are farming in a drinking water safeguard zone. And you can do this by using the What's in Your Backyard website. Fab Kelly Houston Fisher, back in a fortnight. It's Love Lamb Week this week, celebrating and promoting British lamb. It actually started on Friday, uh, runs until this coming Friday. Now in its third year, the aim is to highlight what's happening among our sheep farmers and naturally to encourage shoppers to eat a bit more of it during lamb's peak season. I thought, therefore, it was the perfect opportunity to revisit three guests from earlier in the summer who all have been working hard to keep certain sheep breeds from disappearing for good. Uh, first, Gail Sprague. She's chair of the Rare Breed Survival Trust. We're surrounded here by sheep. I know the Rare Breeds Trust have worked very hard and very successfully with some rare breeds of, particularly sheep, I think of the Lincoln Longwell and that kind of thing. They've worked really hard there, haven't you? Yep. I mean, it's, it's not all doom and gloom. Mm. We have a lot of breeds that are now reclassified as native, our success stories. I'm standing in my pen with Southdown sheep. They came off the watch list in 2007. There are many thousand of them. Next door, we have the Shropshire sheep, another um, breed that's actually a success story. But then similarly, right the way at the top of the list, we have the Borarays, probably about 300 breeding females, one of our smallest primitive breeds. And, and all of those need monitoring, saving, promoting, and just encouraging people to actually not just breed them and keep them, but believe it or not, to encourage the wider public to ask for those cuts of meat, whether it's beef or lamb or pork, at the butchers, because if the housewife demands a joint of Southdown lamb or a joint of traditional Hereford beef or Gloucester Old Spot pork, if the butchers have to get more of it, then the whole circle um, continues. 
You make it sound so easy. I'm sure it is now. With, with uncertainty in agriculture, the moment, how, how difficult a job is it to, to convince farmers to take up these kind of things? It is a challenge, um, and certainly in the light of the changes with the Common Agricultural Policy and with Brexit looming. Um, obviously, Mr Gove has just recently closed the, um, the consultation period. RBST put forward a very strong and vocal case for the need to actually recognise the qualities and the use of native breeds of livestock for grazing. So we hope that the government will look, we receive no government funding that would like that to change but at worst we would actually really encourage the politicians the government to look to think to give our farmers the people who are getting their hands dirty and getting up and feeding for 365 days a year you know at the rock face whether it's sunshine or beast from the east <laughs> to keep these animals and if there can be some accurate and true incentive for keeping native UK breeds in native UK farms that should I think work for the good of not just the breeds but for our, our heritage, for our livestock, for our countryside and it should be win-win but it is a challenge because farmers are reluctant to change. We've got to try and persuade them to try different things, but they've also got to be given the support because it's it's pretty tough out there for us as farmers. Now, one of those rare breeds Gail and the Trust have helped save, as I mentioned, is the Lincoln Longwell. Louise Fairburn is chair. We're in Category 3 of the Rare Breed Survival Trust watch list, so um, then there's no sheep any higher than us, so we're, we're as endangered as they get, if you like. Um, and, and we need people to just acknowledge this breed of sheep if we want them to survive for future generations. We need new breeders, people to take over from us when we finish, so it's just to ensure that they actually are perpetual and they keep going. What is it about the Longwall that's so special? Well, they're just a super charismatic sheep. They're fabulous. They're highly domesticated. They've lived alongside humans for, what, something along in the region of 700 years. They're used to us, and, and we love them. Now, of course, if you've been to a country show this summer, however big or small, the chances are you will have seen the team from the Sheep Show in attendance, shearing sheep on the back of their lorry. Uh, Richard Savory is from the Sheep Show. Meat uh, is the main sort of... Uh, source of income for far, for sheep farmers and um, uh, uh, people expect their food to be on the supermarket shelves 24 7 um, and it's a long process to get it there you know for sheep it's five months for a lamb and then you've got another three or four months before they're ready to eat you know beef it's even three years people forget about that and we, we sort of had this cheap food sort of principle and it's in people's psyche but you know i heard a horrific fact the other day that only eight percent of our income goes is spent on food you know 25 years ago is probably 30 percent uh it can't carry on i know the government wants us to have cheap food but as farmers if you want real industrialized farming that's what you're going to get with cheap food but if you want the environment to look like it is with the small farms and and i've seen it in my 30 years here you know uh, from new zealand that the change in agriculture and that, that sort of um you know and i don't think that yeah cheap food is the answer shearing the sheep it's not cruel is it they need to be sheared really. that's right i mean by law we have to shear a sheep and and over hundreds of years we've really developed sheep uh to grow more wool uh, during the years when wool was worth more than oil was uh you know sheep were there to produce more and more wool i guess it's turned turned round and we are sort of developing sheep that have got less wool but we still have that 
we've still got to shear a sheep and unfortunately there's no machine to do it. Richard Savory there with Gail Sprake and Louise Fairburn. Before him, all definitely in the love lamb category. You can uh, hear the passion for what they do in promoting sheep and sheep farming, can't you? If you want to find out more about the week itself, then check out Love Lamb Week online. There'll be information on there of uh, possible lamb tasting events nearby, other activities near you as well. And I know some sheep farmers are actually going into schools as well this week to promote what they do. I hope it goes well. Right, is it a Love Weather Week? (laughs) Let's find out. The Farming Programme. Five-day forecast. Well, you've noticed this weekend it's uh, warmed up a touch. High pressure, the reason for that. We're uh, lying just south of the jet stream at the moment, but uh, that will change today. It is sunny, uh, 24 the high, the wind from the south at about 15 miles an hour. Overnight tonight, some cloud for a time, but mostly clear skies. We're looking at lows of 15, the wind from the south, again, about 5 to 10 miles an hour. And then tomorrow, the possibility of some rain, a little cooler, 18 at best, the wind from the northwest, again, 5 to 10 miles an hour. Staying cloudy overnight Monday into Tuesday, looking at lows of around 11, maybe even 10 Celsius first thing on Tuesday. The wind from the north, 10, gusting at 20 miles an hour. And then a sunny day for Tuesday itself, that cloud clearing through the morning, 19 the high, the wind from the north-northeast at about 10 miles an hour. More in the way of cloud to start Wednesday morning. We're looking at overnight lows of around 11 Celsius. That wind still from the north, 10, maybe gusting at 20 miles an hour. And then some sunshine to come later in the day on Wednesday. Highs again around 19. And the wind from the east-northeast at about 15 miles an hour. For the latter end of the week, more of the same really. Bit of patchy cloud, maybe some sunny spells. Highs perhaps into the early 20s, 22 possibility overnight lows of around 12 celsius we'll keep a check on the hourly forecast to see if that will change for now though that is the forecast uh, next week we'll preview the new sugar beet campaign it's uh, about to get underway again i know where's the year going uh, nick morris will have the latest from british sugar for us until then have a good love lamb week